Well, one thing we discovered or were reminded of during the various lockdowns we've lived under over the last two years is that we were created for relationships with our fellow human beings. Romantic relationships, family relationships, friendships. We were deprived to one extent or another of all those things, weren't we, through the various measures that were brought in to deal with coronavirus. And we found that extremely difficult. Why? Because it's struck at the core of who we are as human beings. We are created for relationships with others. But the Bible tells us we were created not only for relationships with one another, but with the very one who made us in the first place, with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says that God made us in his image. That's not true of the animals or the birds or the fish. It is uniquely true of human beings, of you and me. To be made in God's image means that we are made like God in many ways. There are certain things I haven't got time to go into today that are very, very different between God and us. But there are other things in which we reflect God, in which actually we're very similar to him. God made us that way. Why? So that we could relate to him. So that we could connect with him. But there's a key word, or series of words actually, in the passage that I read and we're looking at today, which has gone seriously wrong in this world. And that key word is the word reconciliation. It's said a number of times, isn't it? If you look down, or, or similar words, verse 18, you've got the word reconciled and reconciliation. In verse 19, you've got reconciling and reconciliation. Uh, and in verse 20, you've got the word reconciled. What does that mean, to be reconciled? Well, it means for two people who have been estranged from one another to be brought together in a fellowship and a relationship. And Paul says that the two people, the two parties that have been reconciled here are God on the one hand, and human beings, his people, on the other hand. So remember, we're created for relationship with God. We're created to know him and enjoy him and hear him and to speak to him and just to be with him. We're created for all those things. And yet Paul tells us here in Corinthians that God and human beings, God and his people, have been brought together having previously been far apart what does that tell us it tells us that although we were created to know God and to enjoy him and to be in relationship with him something has happened to completely break that apart and something has happened to completely destroy that relationship and that communion that we were created to have the good news is, as this passage is all about, something has happened to deal with that. Something has happened to make what was supposed to be again. But we need to think, first of all, about what has broken what God created 
and designed. If you think of the early chapters of the Bible, they're fundamental, aren't they, to understand why the world is as it is today and why we are as we are as human beings. And you think of in the early chapters, we see God creating, don't we? We see God creating the heavens above us. And we see God creating the earth on which we live and move. And we see God creating the seas in which we swim, although I don't like swimming, but uh, the seas in which some of us at least swim. And we see God creating birds to fly in the air uh, and beasts to, to roam along the earth and creeping things to creep, funnily enough, uh, along the earth. And we see God creating day and night and all these kinds of things. And then we see God creating a man and God creating a woman. And in the Garden of Eden, where they live, we see God dwelling with them. God living, in that sense, with this man and this woman, coming to walk with them, to enjoy relationship. That's a picture of relationship, isn't it? We go for walks with people we have a relationship with. I'm not just going to go out now of this building at the end of the service, and there's some random stranger walking past, and I say, should we go for a walk somewhere? They'd probably take me away, wouldn't they? I think there's something funny with this chap. We go for a walk with people we have a relationship with. So we go for a walk with our spouses. We go for a walk with siblings or parents or friends. And it's an expression, that walk, of the fact that we are close to one another. That we have a relationship. We have fellowship, communion, interaction with one another. And we feel comfortable with that and we enjoy that. And that's the picture of God and humanity at the beginning. Comfortable with one another. Enjoying one another. Relating to one another. Being together and expressing that by going for a walk together. And then, of course, we find that it all goes horribly wrong. Whose fault? The relationship is spoiled. The relationship is broken. Whose fault? Man's fault. Humanity's fault. Humanity decides that it wants to walk its own way. At one time, it was walking with God. It decides, no, no, I want to walk my own way. I want to be my own God. I want what he's got. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. And I want to do what I want to do, whether he likes it or not. And so we see Adam rebelling against God by doing what he said, uh, what God said you must not do. And ever since that day, that's been the basic heart of every human being. I will do what I want to do, because I am my own God. I am my own king. I am my own master. I rule my life. Adam began it, and we all follow very happily in his footsteps. And that caused, as you would imagine, a complete break in the relationship between God and humanity. And we find, don't we, at the end of Genesis 3, uh, the man and his wife Eve being put out of the garden. What's that symbolic of? No fellowship with God. No relationship. Cut off from him. You can't come in here. You cannot be with God. You cannot walk with him in that way because of your sin and rebellion against him. And that's where we all are by nature. 
we are born, there are two major problems now. We are born with hearts that are naturally inclined to reject God. That's our default setting. You know, when you get a mobile phone, we talk about the default setting, don't we? Uh, by that, we mean before you input anything into it, you know, your, your contact list uh, and your songs that you download onto it and all that kind of thing, before you put anything onto it, this is how it's made. This is how it comes out of the factory. This is what it is at its most basic level, the factory setting. And the factory setting of the human heart, how it comes out, if you like, before we put into it our lives and everything we experience and so on. The factory setting of our heart is rejection of God, rebellion against God, and in fact, a hatred of the God of the Bible. I want nothing to do with him. I'm going to do my own thing. And so we don't want a relationship with God by nature. We don't want anything to do with him. We want him to leave us alone. We don't want to listen to him. We don't want to speak to him. We don't want to have any relationship with him at all. We wish he'd leave us alone. In fact, the best thing for us would be if it could be proved that he didn't exist at all. And so we devote ourselves, and many people do that, don't they? We devote ourselves to trying to prove that there is no God and to trying to airbrush God out of the world that he created. That's what it is. It's trying to airbrush God out. It's trying to rewrite history and trying to recreate reality to suit us because we don't want God. And we've got this major problem and there seems to be this God. So let's try and get rid of him by pretending he's not there. It's a ridiculous endeavor, isn't it? It's like uh, pretending, you know, if I close my eyes now, there's nobody in the room because I can't see you. Of course there are people in the room. I can't rewrite what's there. I can't make those seats blue, because that they suit me much better if they were blue. They're red, and there we are. I've got to deal with it. But there's this basic setting of the human heart against God. So we don't want a relationship with God. And the second problem is, even if we wanted one, we couldn't have one. Because our sin our rejection of God's law, our rebellion against his commandments, and everything he says in his word means that God is rightly angry with us by nature. That's not a popular truth, but it is the truth. Again, it's not, can't make our own truth up. There it is. Um, a number of years ago, I remember the Manic Street Preachers. I don't know if you've heard of them. Perhaps the, the, the Welsh um, group. Uh, they brought an album out, I think it was, or at least a single, either an album or a single. And when I was younger, it, it didn't really mean anything to me. But now I look back and think, wow, yeah, that is the human mindset. It was, you tell me your truth, and I'll tell you mine. In other words, there isn't one truth. You've got a truth, and you tell me what truth to you. And i got a truth, and I'll tell you what mine is. And probably if we listen to one another, we'll come to a common truth that we can all live with. But truth is what it is. And God defines truth. And the truth is that God is rightly angry with us by nature, apart from Jesus Christ. God is rightly angry with us for rejecting him, for trampling on his good and righteous commandments, and for drawing from him all the pleasures of this life and giving him no thanks in return. 
And so there's a great break between us. We don't want him. And he's angry with us. What an awful situation by nature. And we see the conflict raging all around us, don't we, today? We see it in Ukraine, sadly, don't we, in Ukraine and Russia. And we see it on the streets of Klidach, perhaps. We see it in homes. Conflict. Breakdown of relationships. And all these things are the fruit of this root. Our relationship with God. And things will never be right in this world until things are right between us and God. This is tragic beyond belief, isn't it? When you compare what we have now with what was in Eden. Peace, love, fellowship, relationship, going for walks. And today we have conflict, anger, rebellion, hatred, and killing. God created us for fellowship with him, and it's the very thing we do not have. We don't want it, and we can't have it. But the good news is that God has acted to rescue this desperate situation. And he sent two things. One I'm just going to mention in passing now, and the other we look at in a bit more detail here. But the first thing he's done in this work of reconciliation, bringing us together. First thing he's done, he's given us a heart to want him again. Do you remember I said by nature, we don't want God. By nature, we don't want to listen to him. We don't want to speak to him. We don't want to sing to him. So the last thing we want to do today, by nature, and perhaps you were in that position today and you've just come for some other reason, but the last thing we want to do is to sit down and listen to God speak to us from a book. I don't care what he thinks, I don't care what he says. The last thing we want to do is to speak to him, or if we do want to speak to him, is to give him a piece of our mind. The last thing we want to do is to talk about him with other people. Boring. I don't want to talk about him. But God has done something remarkable. We call it the new birth. And what God has done is give us a new heart. He's given us a new nature. He's made us a new person inside. And as Christians, we have a new birth. And this new heart, the basic setting of this new heart is, I want God. There's much I don't know about him. And I'm still not uh, as I should be. But my basic desire deep down is inside is, I want God. God. And so when there's an opportunity for the Bible to be read, oh, we're there because we want to hear God. We want him. So, God, what, what do you say? Uh, and when there's a situation, a crisis or anything like that, the first thing we do is cry out to him because we want him to hear us. And when people are talking about God, oh, we, we want to join the conversation because we want him. And so the more we can hear about him, the better. And so that's a Christian, someone with a new heart, a new birth, somebody who now wants God, who wants a relationship with God, who wants to listen to God and speak to God and hear about God, and wants to walk with God. But there's something else I want to focus on with you now, and it's this. To, to, to bring us back together, God has given us a heart for a relationship with him. But God has also made it possible for us to have a relationship with him. Because it would be one thing, wouldn't it? That would be good. He's given us a new heart now. And we want God. But there's still a big problem. 
everything we have done to break that relationship, everything we have done to estrange us from God, everything we have done to alienate ourselves from him, as Paul puts it in Colossians, still stands apart from Jesus Christ. And that can't simply be undone by us. The relationship was torn. The relationship was absolutely destroyed. And that cannot simply be forgotten about. That cannot simply be brushed under the carpet and off we go with God. We want this relationship with God, but can we have it? By nature, no. By grace, yes. And that's what I want to look at uh, with you now. And I want to talk about three things that Paul tells us here uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 in particular about this great thing that has happened. It's an awful word to describe a thing, but bear with me. About this great thing that has happened to make what a Christian now wants a reality. The first thing I want to say about it is this. It's something God has done, not us. God has acted to repair the relationship. God has acted to make things right again, not us. It is a divine work. Now, that's remarkable. Because usually, when a relationship is broken, of whatever kind, on a human level now, whenever a relationship is broken for one reason or another, if that relationship is going to be made right, if there's going to be a coming together again into relationship and fellowship, one of two things happens. Either the person who was ultimately at fault for that breakdown approaches the one they've offended and says, can we make things right? I realize what I said or what I did was wrong. And it has broken things between us. And we are now far apart from one another. But I want us to come together again. I want that relationship with you. Can you please forgive me? Can we please do something to put this right? That's what normally happens, isn't it? Or what happens is that somebody from outside the dispute and the breakdown will come in to help bring the two together. Uh, to broker peace. So when we think of a, a conflict, a political conflict or a global conflict, a war of that kind, you will sometimes have a third party, a third country, will arrange peace talks in their country between the two people, the two countries fighting. So it's either the one who's caused the problem, the one who is ultimately at fault for the breakdown, comes and says, look, please forgive me, let's get this going again. Or somebody from outside basically knocks the two heads together and says, come on now, this isn't right, let's get going. But the astonishing thing we learn in this passage is that neither of those two things has happened. There's no third party as such that has come in to deal with it. And we ourselves have not even asked for it to be dealt with. We didn't even seek this, never mind do anything about it. The astonishing thing is that as an act of his free, sovereign grace, God, the one utterly, utterly blameless in the whole matter, the one who did nothing wrong, the one who has only ever been kind and good to us, 
but that we rejected, despised, and offended. He is the one who independently of us has said, I want a relationship with you. I want fellowship with you. I want to go for walks with you. I want communion with you. We're going to have you having communion. I didn't talk about this deliberately, funny enough, because we're having communion. But what we're going to have is we're going to have communion with God again. And it's God who said, I want this. And it's God who said, I am going to do something so that we can have a relationship. Now, that's amazing. It would be incredible if we had gone to God and said, look, God, we've done something wrong here. Look, God, we've sinned. We've messed up horrendously. But we see that now. We recognize that. And we want things to be right. Please, Lord, can we get together again? And if God had said, yes, okay, that would be amazing grace. Or if somebody, if I can put it in this way, very irreverently, perhaps forgive me, had got us and God in a room together. And I said, now come on, let's sort this out so you can come together again. And God said, okay, I'm willing to get into that room. I'm willing to come to the table for talks. That would have been incredible. But this is beyond all that. This is almighty God who has every right to absolutely obliterate us who has every right to condemn us all for eternity to hell, who says to people, I'm going to do something, and now has done something to make this right and to deal with what you have done. We didn't ask him to do it. We didn't plead with him to do it. But he has done it. It's an act that comes entirely from God. And if he had not done it, there would be no hope for us. The only way this reconciliation has come about is through the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Verse 18, this reconciliation, this coming together again, this restoration of relationship. Verse 18, all this is from God. We read, God reconciled us to himself, verse 18. Uh, Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. It's something he has done. You know, pagan religion tells us, doesn't it, you have offended the gods. Do something. Bring something to appease them. Biblical Christianity says you have offended the only true and living God. He has done something to appease himself towards you. All these things are of God. Somebody has said reconciliation is not something we do. It's something we receive. It's not something we accomplish. It's something we embrace. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So here's this tremendously tragic breakdown of relationship. And Paul holds out for us here. This is my message, he says, that something's been done about that. That it's now possible for human beings to relate to God again and to to have a relationship with him. And Paul says it's something that God has done himself unsolicited, 
unsought in free unmerited favor. The second thing Paul tells us uh, in these verses about this reconciliation is that something God has done through one person called Christ in these verses. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, here's my message, says Paul, and it's mine to you today. And it's this church's message to Clidach and further afield, perhaps. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So this has to do with that person that was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago, grew up, Mary, his mother, Joseph, the, the role of a father for him. Uh, and he learned his father's trade of carpentry. Uh, and then when he was about 30, uh, he did something nobody expected. Uh, and he went on the road and he started teaching about God, although he'd never been to any rabbinical school. He didn't have his theological degree. He hadn't had his cap and gown. Didn't have a certificate to show. Qualified from the Jerusalem rabbinical school. Uh, he hadn't even done sort of kindergarten in Nazareth. But out he went, teaching uh, and healing people. And it's to do with this one who was then, about three years later, taken to a cross and nailed to it and put in a tomb. This work of reconciliation, this undoing of what we have done to break the relationship, this thing that has happened to bring us into communion with God so we're able to have the Lord's Supper this morning in a meaningful way and so on, it all has to do with him. It's centered on him. And it's all about why he came into the world in the first place. Because the Bible tells us Jesus didn't just appear, did he? In the way that you and I appear. He was sent from elsewhere into this world. Now that's not true of anyone else. No, not true of any other human being that we've come from somewhere else into this world. We are nowhere else to begin with. We don't exist to begin with. And then we begin to exist inside a woman. And then, of course, we develop inside that woman and out we come and here we are today, all of different ages. But the Bible tells us that Jesus of Nazareth is not like that. He came into this world from somewhere else. Not just he came into this world, he was sent into this world. He came on a mission. That word sent um, conjures up the whole idea of coming for a particular purpose with something in mind. And the Bible speaks about the fact that before the world was even created, God had purpose to do this great work of reconciliation. It would be done in Jesus Christ. And so it was to do this that he came into the world. So Jesus of Nazareth is unique and absolutely essential because he is the crux of this work of reconciliation. He is the agent of reconciliation. Without him, there is no reconciliation. So Jesus Christ is all important. He's not just an interesting figure. He's not just a nice little person for children's stories. Everything depends on him. Without him, We'll never have a relationship with God. Without him, God will always be angry with us. Without him, it's a continual disaster and there is no hope. But now, Paul says, God sent him into the world and through him, God has done something to reconcile us. 
And that's the third thing I want to say now. What is this thing that has happened then? We know it's something God has done. He planned it and he executed it. We know it's something centered on Jesus Christ. Thing for Christians, because he is the one through whom what we have now has happened and is possible. But what is it that has happened? Well, it's sort of mentioned here in verse 21. It's not crystal clear, and so I'm going to bring in some other verses uh, to, to help us with that. But it's sort of um, described for us very helpfully, actually, in verse 21. This is what has happened. For our sake, God made Jesus, made Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what's going on here? This. We've got sin here and righteousness, haven't we? We've got sin is rebellion against God and the breaking of his law. And we've got righteousness, which is obedience to God and love for God. So on the one hand, we've got sin, rejecting God and breaking his law. And on the other hand, righteousness is obeying God and loving him and so on. And so Paul says what happened is that God has done something about our sin. Because don't forget, it's our sin that has broken the relationship. We have decided we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want him. We're going to live our own way. We're going to be our own master. And so because of that, we've broken off this relationship with him and turned the other direction and gone that way away from him. And our life is a picture of that. Our sins, don't forget, are all a fruit of that rebellion. When we talk about sin, we tend to think of little actions we do, but they're just the outward symptoms, aren't they, of a deep problem within, which is rebellion and rejection. And all those things have happened now as an expression of our rebellion. And God is angry with us because of that. And the only way he can stop being angry with us is if those sins are punished. Because they are wrong. They are desperately, desperately wicked and wretched, those sins. And the life that we have lived. And God is rightly angry with us. And until something is done about what we have done, God cannot but be angry with us and he has every right to be so. And those sins have to be sorted. Those sins have to be punished, actually, because they're a breaking of a law, and the law has to be satisfied. And do you know what this passage tells us here? That God has punished those sins, but he's punished them in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do, that's how he is the agent of reconciliation, because he has taken God's anger against our rebellion for us. And it's been satisfied in him. It's been poured out fully on him. It's been exhausted in him. Our sins, our rejection, our rebellion has been punished. And the Bible tells us, and Paul indicates here, that it's punished in Jesus. Verse 21, for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. In other words, our sins 
were credited to Jesus Christ. They were put under his name. So that if you open God's book, you've got Jesus' name, and under it, all the sins of all God's people. That's what happened that day at Calvary. Our sins were taken and put upon Jesus, put under his name, transferred to his ownership in that sense, and he owned them, as we would say today in that modern phrase, uh, I've got to own this, he owned them. He stood before God accountable for them. You know, if we've been Christians here many years, oh Lord, keep us from familiarity with that truth. What an awesome, mind-blowing statement that the one who knew no sin, the one who only ever loved God, the one who only ever did what pleased him, the one who only ever sought his Father and did his will, he stands accountable for the wretched, vile rebellion of you and me and of his people. God purposed this. God carried this out. Jesus Christ was made sin for us. And he died for those sins. Paul says in another one of his letters, he has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, God is angry with us because of our sin. Our sins must be punished. The penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus Christ dies as the penalty for sin. And God's wrath is poured out upon him there. And as we are naturally estranged from the Father because of our sin, do you know what happened on the cross? Jesus was estranged from the Father. And he felt it. He felt that estrangement from his Father because he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has this relationship been spoiled? Why do I not have this communion with you, Father? And he knows why. It's because he's our sin bearer. And he's suffering the punishment for sin, estrangement, rejection, breakdown. God cannot simply say, and this happens sometimes in human relationships, doesn't it? There's been a breakdown, and we say, oh, look, I can't put up with this strife any longer. Let's just be friends again. Oh, yeah, and we both agree to be friends. We don't talk about what's caused the problem. We don't try and deal with it. Let's just be friends again and move on. Why all this upheaval? But it never works, does it? The relationship is never the same, and there's always that elephant in the room until the matter is dealt with. And that's what happened at the cross. God dealt with our sin by punishing it in Jesus so that he doesn't need to be angry with us now because anger has been exhausted and satisfied in Jesus Christ. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And then something else, as I come to a close, happened. Paul tells us here in verse 21, not only did Christ take our sin and suffer for it and pay the price for it so that we don't have to, but in Christ, through God's work, we might become 
the righteousness of God. Because you see, all right, now our rebellion against God, our utter imperfection is dealt with. But we still need perfection, don't we? The consequences of what we've done, sorted, but we need that righteousness, we need that perfection, we need that beauty, or God cannot relate to us. God cannot receive us into his presence. We cannot have a relationship with him without righteousness. And that's the other part of what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to live a righteous life. So he lived a righteous life that we now have given to us, and he died that death to suffer our penalty. So our sin is gone, we have righteousness from Christ, and so there is now nothing to keep the people of God from him. Because we have no sin against our name in God's book. We have all Christ's righteousness under our name, so we are perfectly qualified by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ to be in God's presence. Again, that's amazing. When you think of the, the Old Testament uh, and, and, and the, the tabernacle and the temple and they, only certain people could go one place and only one person could go right in the middle and if he didn't have shed blood, he'd die and he can only go once a year. And here we are this morning in this little building in Clidach, perfectly qualified to be in God's presence. And nobody can come today and say, you can't be here. You've no right to be here. We've been brought here through this work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to practice that now at the Lord's table. We have a relationship with God. We can be in his presence. We can spend time with him. We can just be with God. This one was angry with us. This one we were turned away from. What a change God has brought us to want him. And God has enabled us to have him. And that's the story of a Christian. Separated from God, now in fellowship with God. Rebelling against God, now serving God. And it's happened through something God planned, God carried out in Jesus Christ. And it involves his righteous life, which we have so we can now be acceptable to God. And his death, so that everything that spoiled it all is fully taken away. That's what God has done. And Paul says, as I finish with this, that God then gives to his church a work, which is to declare this news. And that's what I've come to do for you today. I've come to declare this news of our natural state and what God has done through Jesus Christ in grace. And you now are required, if you haven't, to respond to this to react to this. Paul says, we implore you. He's speaking to the Corinthians there, but it's true of every Christian speaking to others. We implore you. That's how serious it is. Not just, well, perhaps you'd like to consider this. If you have time now in the busy week that's coming, you may want to just let your mind drift in this direction for a while. It's far more serious than that. Paul says, we implore you, we beg you. Almost, I don't mean this literally now, please don't misunderstand me, but almost this is so serious, we're going to lock the doors, and until you've done something about this, we're not letting you out. That's how serious it is, says Paul. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, acknowledge your rebellion, acknowledge that you've broken this relationship, acknowledge you can do nothing about it, and acknowledge and embrace the fact that Jesus Christ has and ask him to bring you back to God and to deal with what took you from God in the first place. Do you know the astonishing thing? Paul says, actually, it's Christ who's saying this to you today. We implore you on behalf of Christ. So it's not just something I'm doing under my own name or that this church does week by week under its own name. We're doing this in Christ's name, on his commission, with his authority. Uh, And we read here that God makes his appeal through us. So I say this morning with biblical authority that what I have said to you today is what God himself says to you. You're not dealing with some man from Carmarthen, some fallible man from Carmarthen who will go home and perhaps you'll never see him again. You're dealing today with Almighty God. And he says to you today, be reconciled to me. Embrace this work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would finish with Paul, who says, from chapter 6, working together with Christ, and that's what I've sought to do today, to work with Christ, I appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when this message is declared and when this message can be received. But Paul was conscious he was working against the clock. He talked earlier in chapter 5 about a day when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the time runs out. We have, without wanting to be dramatic, we have about 35 minutes less to respond than we had when I started to the grace of God. Do not receive the grace of God in vain.